Thank you for tuning in to What's the Wi-Fi Password, an extension of our youth ministry at Calvary Monterey. Here you will find teachings from our Tuesday night studies, as well as conversations about relevant topics for our parents and students. James chapter 1, we're going to be going through uh, verse 1 to 18 tonight. Uh, and so, you know, it's interesting, probably if I would have, or when I taught the book of James, I can't remember the last time I taught it, but... In the last 14 years, I probably taught in the book of James a couple times. Um, and I know probably I took longer to teach it and probably broke it up into like smaller chunks and tried to like teach on individual like purposes that James wanted to communicate to his readers. Um, and you can kind of do that even in these you know 18 verses we're going to go through tonight. If you were to take one section, like let's say verses 9 through 11, you would think that's on possession and being poor and being rich and what we can take into heaven. But as I've read through James, I've been studying through it um, and the commentaries I've been reading. What I've came, come to understand and what, how I want to teach it this time is on a little bit bigger chunks. That's why we're going to be teaching August, September, October, and like that first weekend in November. We'll go through the book of James in that time. And teaching as a whole or in the bigger chunks so you get more of an idea of what James is really trying to communicate. Where tonight, going through verses 1 through 18, it's basically on trials on how we should react and act and how we should seek out God through these trials and through these times. And this is just one subsect of what James wants to teach us through these five chapters. This letter he wrote to this first century church that were mainly Jewish Christians, as James was a Jew himself. And, and what he really wanted to communicate was this practical faith, was this living, healthy, practical faith. Um, and, and in so many ways, as you and I walk each day, as we talk each day, as we try to live as Christians each and every day, and hopefully you do, hopefully at some point in your, your day, at some point as you're going to school or your job or you're just waking up and fighting with your sibling or trying to obey your parents, hopefully within that time there's something in you that says, I need to act more like Christ in this situation. <laughs> I need to be more like Jesus. And what James wants to communicate to you and I in this living, practical, healthy faith is that there's something inside of you, right, called the Spirit of God, that convicts you in that moment, that says, yeah, you should act more like Jesus in this moment. You shouldn't smack your sibling. You shouldn't back talk or roll your eyes at your parents. You know, you young ladies, I'm sure you're great at the, right? <laughs> the, the, the flat tire, right? The flat tire effect. Um, you know, um, I heard, actually, Santi did it to me. Who, who did it to me earlier today? One of you guys did it to me. Elias, Elias did it to me, yeah. We were putting away the chairs, yeah. We were putting away the chairs, y'all. <sighs> the flat tire. Um, so, but like, in those moments, you have this spirit of God living inside you that's challenging you, that's convicting you. Now, what James wants to now take, take that faith, that take that conviction, that spirit of God living in you, and take it a step further by now working out that thing. Not just having conviction and going, oh, maybe next time. Right? Oh, yeah, I probably should, but oh, well, right? The moment's passed. Where James, he wants to challenge us in this living, practical, healthy faith, that now you need to work it out. That God's put this spirit inside you. He put this conviction inside you. Now it's time to work out that faith. And he's going to use these terms. He's going to keep talking about, in a sense, this working up. Now I just want to set the foundation. This is not an earning salvation. You're not earning the, the love of God. You're not earning the approval of God. God's not sitting up there each day checking off the times you've, you've done well and you've actually acted out your faith and putting a negative every time you haven't. That's not our God. Our God has done the work through Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace alone, by Christ alone, and his work on the cross alone, guys. Okay? And that just needs to be the foundation. But I truly do believe that once you accept Christ and you receive that salvation, you receive the working of the Spirit in your life, 
so that we don't become this stagnant Christian. Because when water flows into, into a pool or into a pond and doesn't flow out, what happens to it? It becomes stagnant. It becomes this muddy, nasty, like, like weedy pond. There needs to be an outflow of it so that the water stays fresh. And in the same way, God is pouring into you. You're coming to youth group Tuesday after Tuesday, going to church Sunday after Sunday. You're hearing this word of God. But if nothing's flowing out, if you're not serving in some way, there can become a stagnant in your faith. You can become stagnant in this, this thing we call faith. And so what James here wants to communicate in such a real and practical way to each and every one of us, whether it was 2,000 years ago or today, is that it's time to work it out. It's time to get some of that faith out. You're not earning that salvation, but you are working, you are living a practical faith. And I, I for one, in my own Christian walk, truly like hold to this. That if there's not some type of evidence in your life, there's not some type of proof in your life that you're working out your faith, you've got to check yourself. You've got to ask yourself, like, what is this really about? Is this even my faith? Or am I just riding the coattails of my parents? Am I just going to church because it's fun? Am I just enjoying youth group because it's an awesome place to hang out and he has candy every Tuesday? Like, it has to be more than that. Let me go over a couple verses for you. All the way through chapter 5, I'm going to take a verse out of each chapter and just show you how James kind of practically... You guys okay over here? Is that right? Yeah? Um, how, how James shows this practical faith, this working out. So again, chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Right? This is working out that pure and undefiled religion is helping those in need, helping those in the foster care system, helping, helping widows, o- older women whose husbands have passed away, and they're like, how do I clean the gutters now? It's a practical way to help them out. Seriously, I've done it. Okay, chapter 2, verse 17, he says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. We're going to kind of revisit this subject multiple times through these chapters, where literally he calls it a dead faith if there's no working out. Kind of like that stagnant pond where the water's flowing in, but because there's nothing flowing out, there's just nothing living in it that's worth having. There might be some, some you know, crawfish in there or some muddy catfish or something like that, but nothing you really want. And so there has to be this outflowing. Chapter 3, verse 13, James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Again, the showing of works. So there's evidence that your faith is living and not dead. Chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, he says, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself to God, or therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Again, there's this working. There's this resist. Make the choice to resist the devil. Make the choice to draw near to God. Make the choice to be humble before the God that created you. Chapter 5, verse 16, he says, Therefore, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Again, this choice to pray, this choice to work out your faith, that you won't just say to somebody, oh, I'm praying for you. I'm sorry you're going through that. I'll pray for you. Right? Have you ever done that before? Okay, we all have. Don't, don't make me stand up here and say that. All right, we all have, right? But it's the choice to say, no, I'm going to get on my knees and I'm going to pray for this person. I'm going to take a little bit of moment out of my selfish day and I'm going to pray a little bit for that person. It's the working of the faith. It's not always this outward expression. It's not helping the old lady across the street. It's not cleaning a widow's gutters. But maybe it's just the prayer. Maybe it's just the time and the word of God. There has to be some type of evidence. And this is what James is going to keep circulating is that within your faith, even though you're, 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 
raised Christian, you're from a Christian home, you go to a good Bible teaching church, you've been on a mission trip, you go to camps, whatever, you know, fill in the blanks. Is there a working evidence in your faith? Right? Is it dead or is it alive? Right? Or is it just kind of flopping on the ground half alive? Right? Is it zombie-like? Right? I don't want zombies here. I want a youth group of living, acting faith. Right? Whether it's in your own homes, whether it's in your schools, whether sports, whatever, fill in the blank, guys. I want a living, acting faith in you. And that's what we're going to be going over through the book of James for the next five chapters. And we'll be keep revisiting this, going over it. But hopefully this just encourages you and convicts you. Okay, So let's get started. James chapter 1, verse 1. James says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the twelve tribes and the dispersion. Greetings. So we've seen in some of Paul's letters, he kind of goes on with a longer greeting, like a longer shalom, peace to you type of thing. James just straight up says greetings, right? He's a very practical man. He just gets to the point. But just taking a minute, let's go over the history of this book and or this letter and who James was. So first, James, there's several Jameses in the New Testament. Um, just for time's sake, I'm not going to hit on all of them. One of them was a, an apostle. Another was a father of an apostle. But we know that this is actually the half-brother of Jesus. He was raised with Jesus along with Jude. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55 talks about him. Jude chapter 1 talks about being the half-brother of Jesus with James. Uh, we know that this is the half-brother of Jesus. Could you guys imagine being James? You were raised with the Messiah, right? We, we know that Jesus was, was, was like human, that he, he felt all the emotions, went through puberty, that he, he, he felt loss and love and all those things, but he was still Jesus. He didn't sin, right? I mean, could you imagine being the half-brother of the Messiah, right? The perfect like, Savior of the world. Um, I'd like to think he'd probably be a lot like a guy, like just want to wrestle and hang out and but like you couldn't fight with him <laughs> he would always be right you would know your thoughts right it's just like you could never blame anything on him jesus did it no no he didn't i'm sorry i'm a liar um from acts 15 verse 13 we know that james was actually kind of the pastor over the christian church in jerusalem uh when dispersion happened and um and there was a lot of persecution on the christian church and the, the other apostles spread out J- uh, james stayed in jerusalem to to continue to, to teach and to lead the, the Christian Jews. Uh, There's a lot of persecution. The church was very poor. We know this because as Paul traveled around through his epistles, we see that he, he took collections. As we just finished the book in first, of 1 Corinthians, we read about that. How Paul took a collection for the church in Jerusalem because they were, they were poor. They, a lot of those men and women to become Christian meant that they were, they were ostracized from their families. They probably kicked out of their jobs, maybe even lost property. Like they, to choose Christ for a Jew in the first century basically meant you were giving up everything that was who you were. And so James decided to stay there and be a witness to, um, to his brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, we know that James actually received a resurrected like, like image of Jesus or Jesus visited him after his resurrection. Uh, personally, I believe that this is where James actually started believing <laughs> that, that Jesus was the Messiah. Before this point, we see, we see in like John chapter 7, we see that he actually denied in a sense or didn't, didn't follow after Jesus as the Messiah. So at the resurrection is where James finally realized, no, this, this is the Messiah. He's not just my brother, but my half-brother, but he is the Messiah. And so we see this from this resurrected. So what basically history tells us is that from this point, he followed Jesus um, within that, he followed him with great devotion. Like I said, he pastored over Jerusalem. 
Uh, early history tells us that James was actually such a man of prayer that his knees actually had such large calluses on him that they looked like camel's knees because he spent so much time on his knees in prayer. I know, kind of, there's a picture, huh? Old man knees, like big old balls on there. Um, but like this, like he spent so much time in prayer that, that, that he was this, this man of devotion. They had like these camel knees. It also says that James was a martyr, that in Jerusalem he was actually pushed off one of the high peaks of the temple, but actually hit the ground and didn't die. And what history tells us is that as the men that pushed him went down there and started beating him to death, he actually got up on his knees and started praying for his attackers that they would be forgiven as they killed him. And they beat, literally beat him to death. This is James. This is the man writing this letter. Lived a very practical Christian faith. Right? Lived in a sense of denial of the Messiah. Seeing the resurrected Jesus. Understanding that this is the Messiah for my people, for the Jews. Uh, converted and then started serving. And you have to think the Jews are a very practical people. Right? The way that like, James didn't change everything about himself when he became a Christian, but he just took that practicalness. He took that, that way of living as a Jew and under Roman rule, but yet now is accepting Christ and no longer lived under Judaism, this religious law, but now under the freedom, the new law under Christ. He continues to say, not, not saying and, and boasting of himself. I mean, this is his letter. He could have written James, the half-brother of Jesus. But what he said is James, a servant of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't put a little subnote on there. Oh, and that's my brother, right? It was just, no, a servant of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. He uses the Greek word doulos, a servant, which is basically slave. It, it translates as slave. Maybe you have a different translation other than ESV. It will say the word bond servant, which just basically is slave. One who is in a permanent relation of servitude to another. Among the Greeks, with their strong sense of personal freedom, the term carried a degrading connotation. This would not have been a popular way to describe yourself. Joshua, a slave of. Like, you wouldn't want to be known as that. I would definitely, I would be like, no, Joshua, half-brother of that dude, right? The Messiah. But James doesn't do that. He also says, uh, he also, oh, I'm sorry, my thing went up. Um, he also says that uh, under, the, under the Lord Jesus Christ, using the Greek word, um, uh, kurios, which actually is Lord, which basically translates um, master of doulos, right? It's the master of the slave. So in, in a sense, James is saying, James, slave under Jesus Christ. He's my master, slave under my master, Jesus Christ. He also says to the 12 tribes that are in dispersion, um, this is a Jewish figure of speech that sometimes refers to the Jewish people as a whole. Uh, we see this in Matthew chapter 19. Paul actually refers to the 12 tribes in the same way. Uh, to, to Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. Basically, James' primary ministry was to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. To this group of people within Jerusalem, these Jews who had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, this was his ministry. Now, 2,000 years later, guys, we're reading this book, and I'm telling you, it's, it's one of my favorite books. And if you've had time to study it, it's probably one of yours too. And this really is like an impactful book that of practical faith that will challenge you each and every day. If you were to read this every year, if you were to just take a month or two months every year and read through the book of James, I guarantee it would, it would impact you in great ways. So getting into it, he doesn't waste any time. Like I said, he says greetings. There's no shalom. There's no peace. It's just bam, greetings. So verse two through four, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you, need, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. 
So again, in these verses 2 through 18, we see that James wants to, to lay out the idea of how to encounter trials. How, how we as Christians should walk through trials. And in verses 2 through 4, it's patience, endurance in these trials. Patience, endurance through these trials. He says, first off, in verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, or count it joy, when you meet various trials. Now there's two things that should catch your attention here. First off, count it joy and various. Count it joy and various. And then it ends with this word trials. Now those should catch your attention. First, it should be like, well, why should I have joy in the trials? And two, what kind of various trials are he, is he talking about? What, what kind of various trials does he mean? Now, maybe in first century, it was the persecution of the Romans on top of the Jewish people, or just the Jews, like the, Judaism, the Jews of Judaism on top of the Jewish Christians. But in our day and age, these various trials can be many, many things. It can be finances. It can be the future. It can be your relationship with your parents, a relationship with a, with a peer. It could be your relationship with your, with your siblings. Maybe it's a sports. Maybe it's, it's anxiety or fear or, or hurt or pain or sorrow or wounds. These various trials that James lays out for us, he's saying no matter what it is, no matter how it lays out, there should be joy. There should be joy within this. Basically, these trials are inevitable. Right? We have to own that. These trials of life are absolutely inevitable. These things are going to come. But as a Christian, there should be a type of joy that comes with this outcome. Or there should be the type of joy that comes as these various trials like encompass us and are outside of our control. Now, what does this do for us? James continues to say that through these trials or through these various kinds of trials, right, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, we see this progression. And we're going to see it later as we go through these verses that he's going to do this progression of sin. If you've read through this chapter, you know what I'm talking about. We'll get into that. But right now he's doing a progression of what joy in trials produces. Now this is just a, a fact of life, guys. Now anything in life worth having, in a sense, takes hard work, doesn't it? Right? And we can very easily take this and go, well, I want to get better at this sport. So I'm going to push into it. I'm going to find joy when the pain hits. I'm going to find joy when, I, when, when the trial of that, of that sport or that event whether it's weightlifting, I'm, I'm under that bar and I want to hit one more rep. I'm going to push till it hurts. Or whether it's, it's, whether it's drama or whether it's, it's, it's artwork or whatever it is or dance, right? Whatever it is, or even an education, you're going to push through. And it would be easy to kind of go with that in this kind of, in this scenario. But see, it's even more than that. Because trials, a lot of times, you don't have a choice, do you? When a trial comes, you don't have a choice in what's happening around you. James isn't saying, hey, you made a stupid choice, now deal with the consequences. Right? And have joy in the consequences of your stupid choice. No, he's saying these various trials, when things just happen in life, that you have no say or control over what, what happened in it. And you have to ride that wave, and you have to ride it with joy, James is saying. Now, you don't have to. I might, and when I was studying through this, I kind of put myself in the situation. What happens if, what happened, what would happen to Joshua Shively if, if a trial happened, like an extreme trial? Like, let's just go to the extreme. Eric and the kids die in a car wreck, right? I kind of came to my sense and I was thinking like this. And I'm like, okay, Josh would become three different things. Josh would either become a complete heathen that would drink too much, watch porn and become a complete womanizing humanistic pig. Or Josh would become a complete jerk type A workaholic that would just drive myself to the bone or I'd have to walk through with joy. 
Like really, those are my choices, right? If I, if, I, if I really borrowed it down to like, what would be my choices in the worst trial that I could think of? That those would be it. Now see, and James here understands that because he's living in a place where trials are, are extreme. And so speaking to us in our day and age, when a trial hits something that you have no control over, you guys, like you have some choices, you do. But what James says here, that if you walk through with faith, there's actually fruit. There's actually something that produces from it. And he says here that that faith produces, just like a tree produces fruit, steadfastness or patience. And then have, let that patience or that steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, none of us are, none of us are perfect in here. But if you've ever met somebody that goes through an extreme trial in life and they've walked through it trusting Jesus and they've walked through it um, with joy and with peace, knowing that they didn't do it perfectly, but they went through it knowing that God's got them. They're not going to be perfect on the other side, but they're going to be better. They're going to be more mature. They're going to walk through with more patience. They're going to walk through with more steadfastness. They're going to walk through with more maturity and humility and meekness because they chose to seek joy. They chose to walk through this trial in that third choice, as it were, right? Not turning to the flesh, not tur- turning to the sin and becoming everything that, that Christ is not. And yet they walked through it and became out, they came out looking more like Christ. See, it's worth to persevere, you guys. What, what James here wants to start this sec- section with is the idea that it's worth the perseverance. It's worth it. The other outcomes, the other choices, there's no worth in it. What that produces is not, is not any type of fruit, but just more sin. It just produces more Joshua, more flesh, rather than more like Christ. And so we set the stage with that. We move on to chapter, or into chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For the person must suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So James not stupid. He understands he lays out a pretty serious, pretty heavy point to us as the reader. But and then the next logical question would be, okay, James, I have a trial. How do I walk through it with joy? How do I, as this human Right? And all my pains and all my wounds and all my sorrow and all my sin, how do I walk through that with joy? James isn't stupid here. He, he calls us out. He calls you and I as the Christian to say, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Yeah, you're right. You don't have the wisdom to walk through that trial. You don't have the perseverance to. You don't have this, the, the, the patience and the, the fortitude to walk through that trial in your humanistic way. But if you ask of me, I can walk through it with you. See, or Spurgeon actually has a quote on this. He says, The language here implies humility in coming to God. It does not say, let him buy a God. Uh, let him demand of God. Let him earn from God. Oh, no. Let him ask of God. It is the beggar's word. The beggar asks and all. You are to ask as the beggar asks of, of, uh, of you in the street. And God will give you far more liberally than you give the poor. You must confess that you have no merit of your own. What, what Spurgeon here is saying is, is, as we go before the Lord, there has to be humility in it. There has to be a, like a humbleness in our heart as we go before the Lord in this time of trial, in this time of pain, and ask, Lord, how do I walk through this in humility? How do I walk through this with joy? Proverbs chapter 7, verses 1 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 
Fools despise wisdom and instruction. See, as James un, uh, like develops and unfolds this thought, right, this thought of, of, of faith and faith without works, he's first going to tackle the idea that all of us go through trials. All of us encounter hard times. But see, the thing is, we don't have to do it alone, you guys. Nobody, no, no part in the scripture does God ever say, you are by yourself, you're on an island, handle this, deal with it, right? Get, get stronger, earn some calluses. Come on, you can do it on your own. Nowhere in scripture is that ever taught. That's not a theology that we, that we read in scripture. But what we see here is that God is calling us, and James, through, through his writing, is calling us, as you encounter those trials, seek the Lord through wisdom. Seek him through wisdom. Ask him for that wisdom when it's needed. But basically, you guys, what, what, what we have to understand is we have to go to God first. Not to self-help books or to your BFF or even to me, your youth pastor. Don't even go to Google first. Go to God first within the trials and circumstances of life because he gives generously. Go to God first in these things. Right? So many times I, I counsel people and they come with these problems, these issues, and I ask, have you prayed? Have you sought God through scripture? And so many times the answer is no. But I've read this book. But I listen to this podcast. But I'm here talking to you, pastor. Those are all good things. They're not bad things. But the fact is they need to go to God first. You know, you young Christians, you have to understand that, that a big, huge part of this is knowing God's character. Basically, doubting God, as, as James here says, like a man that doubts God or doesn't go to God is like a wave tossed to and fro is a double-minded man. Basically, doubting God and not knowing his character is like doubting the sun is going to rise tomorrow or that the waves are going to stop crashing against the sand. He's a good God that can take the weight of our requests and, lack, and, and the, our, the weight of the lack of our wisdom through these hard times. See, young Christians, you have to develop a character with God. You have to develop an understanding of who he is so that when those trials come and those hard times come and you read scriptures like this, you're like, okay, God, you're calling me to have joy right now. You're calling me to have steadfastness. How do I do that? Do you know that your God wants to answer? Do you know that his shoulders are broad and his back is strong to take the weight of your concerns, the weight of your worries, the weight of those trials? He is. He's so much stronger than any of us here. He's so much stronger than you or me. And the fact is that God wants to take those things. And as James right here, that he will give liberally. He will give to you and I. He will give in a way that, that astounds us, that, that, that completely confounds us, you guys. The times that I've sought God truly with humility on my knees, he's amazed me, absolutely astounded me as how, how he's given wisdom and peace and courage through the hardest of seasons. James here wants us to understand that. Now he continues with this encouragement in verse 9 by saying, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers fall, and its beauties perish. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. James here wants us to continue in this, this idea and this perspective of, of the, the importance of, what, of, of what's important in life. Life is very short. Very, very short, isn't it? I'm sure as you grow, grow older, you realize, like, man, it seems like I was 10 yesterday. I'll be 34 this year. I, I still feel like I'm 21. I don't know what happened the last 13 years. I don't. It's crazy. Erica posted that picture the other day on Instagram. 14 years ago, we took our first youth group to Woodleaf. I, I don't know what happened in the last 14 years. I look at my daughter, and I'm like, who? <laughs> when, when did? How? Why? 
Like you were just this like little raisin that was born. I could fit you in my hand. She was. She was all wrinkly. <laughs> Seth came out like man. He had hair. He was like boom. Like all filled out. Ellie was like this wrinkly little raisin. <laughs> she was still adorable though. Oh my gosh. She was cute. She chunked up quick though. She's like. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Life is short, you guys. Life is short. And James wants us to continue to understand the perspective of what's important in life. As you go through those trials, as those trials will come, they're inevitable. And you, you're in a place of maturity where you go, okay, God, this is hard. I'm reaching my limitation. God, I need wisdom. I need, I need patience. God, I need courage. Lord, help me through this. Continue to remember what's important in life. As, as James here writes this contrast between the poor man and the rich man, the fact is that these riches fade, right? The riches and fame, they fade. We see that in this contrast. That good times will come and go. But if we stay humble, this keeps us in that kingdom mindset and that place of continuing to seek the Lord. Like he's, he's calling out this rich man. All those things you put your hope and faith in, those fade away. The fact is that that, that that poor man, that lowly man, and it's not necessarily a poor, that's kind of a bad translation, but it's the idea of one that is low, one that is humble, one that is walking in meekness. Remember that, right? Have ex, or like Be boast in that exaltation because through that meekness and that humility, you will continue to have the right perspective on what's important. That kingdom mindset will stay front and center in your life and your mind as you walk through that trial that's inevitable. He continues in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials. For when he has stood the test, of the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I think James here is kind of remembering the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says. Now that Jesus says these are the only ways to be blessed, but James continues that thought by blessed is the man, right? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials. James here wants us to understand that in this blessing, right, we learn that we can, we can be blessed through enduring temptation. Not just that you are a blessed man to walk through a trial or through a various trial, but that through that, you will become blessed as you walk in faith, as you stay steadfast. Remain steadfast, hold fast in the test, receive the crown, all is promised to those who love him. It's this promise and this crown of life. We read about this in scripture. I don't know what this is. I don't know what it's going to look like when I get to heaven. If the streets are paved with gold, what do I need to do with a crown? Like, what's up with that, right? But it's this idea that in that, you will receive this, this reward. I don't know what it's like or what it is. But the fact is you receive this re- reward because in that, God sees what you're doing here. He understands what you're doing here. And it kind of begs, to, like, kind of brings to the point that what we do here matters, Right? As that poor and rich man, as that perspective stays right, instead of, instead of putting our faith in what, what kind of fades and goes away like riches and, and, and fame, as we, we choose to do what's right here, as we choose to keep, think of that kingdom mindset and walk through those trials trusting God, God sees those things. Right? And, and in whatever way God sees it and rewards it, he, he, it's echoed into eternity. Those who are faithful are known. Right? We read this in Scripture, we see this in the book of Revelation, that those who walk through perse- er, persecution and, and trials, there's a reward for them at the end. And it just goes to say, like, this life is not all it is. And I'm, I'm happy for that. Maybe that kind of scares you that there's, that there's more than this life, that this is all we get. I'm happy for that. There's, this life's a lot of fun, but there's also a lot of pain. And I'm okay with it. 
To endure temptation, all those various ones he talks about in verse 2, we must have a love for the God who gave all for us. Knowing that if we do not endure and we allow the temptation to become sin, how much it grieves and costs our God and Savior. This brings to the light the relationship that you want to have and I want to have with him. Right? If I didn't have a relationship with Erica, if this was like an arranged marriage, from day one I'd be looking for a way out. If I was just put with this woman, I didn't have any relationship with her, any true acknowledgement of who, who she was. If I didn't fall in love with her over our dating and our, our engagement time, and it was like this just, it was just kind of put together, I would just be like, no, like what would stop me from cheating on her? What would stop me from flirting? What would stop me from, from seeking other ways to, to satisfy myself? What would stop me if I didn't have this relationship? But see, the thing is, as our relationship has grown and matured and as we've got 12 years together now married, the fact is like the, even the thought of, of, of betraying her, it, would, it rips me apart. There's no way I could even consider it because there's a relationship built between us, right? And that kind of goes the same way with God. Sin in, in, its, in itself, you guys, separates you from that relationship with God and those trials and we don't, when we fall into sin through those trials and we don't trust Him, we don't walk in joy and we don't hold fast and, and walk steadfastly in it. What it does to us, you guys, is it separates us from the God who saved us. And see, let me encourage you that as you grow in maturity in your Christian walk and you grow in relationship with God, that sin, that sin nature, that habitual, that habitual temptation in your life, it fades because your relationship with God grows. And when that temptation rears its head and you think about it, you also think, man, this is really going to grieve my God. This is really going to hurt that relationship between me and him. And I don't want to do that anymore. That's why I encourage you guys time and time again as your youth pastor to build a personal relationship with God. Don't just walk as your parents walked in faith. Don't just walk in, as your youth pastor walks in faith. Walk as you would walk before the Lord in a relationship with him. Make it your own. Continuing on, verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, brings forth sin, bring forth, I'm sorry, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. He gives us this analogy in verse 13 through 15, then ends it with verse 16 by saying, Do not be deceived. Basically wanting you and I to understand that it's not God that tempts you. When these trials come, when these, these temptations come in life, as he kind of switches from trials to temptation in this verse 13 through 16, it's not that God tempts you. But honestly, most of the time when we fall into temptation or that temptation raises its ugly head, it's usually us, isn't it? It's usually our sin nature. We can't blame God when that, when that temptation pops up and we fall into it. We can't blame God for that. We can blame ourselves. And that's what James here wants us to understand is do not be deceived. Jesus actually taught us how to pray in this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Right? Praying to God, like, God, like, lead me away from the temptation. He doesn't pray, God, don't let me be tempted or don't, don't tempt me, God. Right? He doesn't pray that or Jesus doesn't teach us to pray that. But basically, he calls us, God, don't let me even go down that path. Proverbs talks, the book of Proverbs talks about it many times as young men and young women. As you look at a path, stay on the straight and narrow. Don't turn to the left or to the right, but stay on the straight. Because in that straight, we're not being veered. We're not being tempted. We're walking before God. Our, our sinful nature has more pull on us within our normal lives than God and the devil, you guys. 
So many times we can think about temptation and sin as like this pull, like, you know, the little devil and little angel on your shoulders. You ever seen those cartoons, right? Like Emperor's New Groove, little cronks, you know? And sometimes we have this image, like when I'm being sinned, it's like, or when I'm, when I'm being tempted or I'm, I'm struggling with sin, it's like, oh, but the spiritual warfare is so tough right now. Like, pray for me. Like, there's so much spiritual warfare. And I'm not disregarding that. There is spiritual warfare. There is a spiritual realm. But more times than not, it's just our sinful nature. It's just you allowing something in your life, right? You're watching shows you shouldn't watch, listening to music you shouldn't listen to, have a relationship with someone you know you shouldn't have. And from that, sin develops. As he, as he describes here, desire. Desire conceives and gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's full growth, brings first death. It first starts with desire. Where is your desire? It's not God tempting you. It's probably not even Satan. Where is your own desire? Where are you putting your time? Where are you putting your efforts? Where are you putting your passions, you guys? Because from that, I guarantee you're going to be able to kind of trace the vines from, from that desire to whatever sin nature is in your life, whatever struggle you have. Where if your desire is to know more about God, your desire is to read the word, your desire is to serve others and love others like Jesus did, from that, you're going to see a stem, you're going to see a vine that, that brings forth good fruit rather than sin and death. I don't know about you guys, but if I saw a tree right, that had sin and death, and I saw a tree that had like good apples, right, good fruit, which one would I want? Apples, right? Come on, guys. Apples. <laughs> Basically, you guys, this is a warning from, from James. As he finishes this thought, and we're almost done here, we have two more verses. He's finishing this thought. And he basically, I mean, really this just lines up like, this is life, dudes. <laughs> this is life. Temptation is always going to be there. But where is your desire? Where, where are you putting your time? Where are you putting your efforts through this temptation? All right, finishing up in verse 17 through 18, guys. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth, by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits to his creation. Now, as James describes this God who gives good things, who, who, who gives good gifts from above, that every perfect gift is from above, right? It comes down from the Father of lights, who doesn't change. He's the same. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's same yes, the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. From this God, he gives good things. What, what James wants us to understand is that in life, we need to measure, right, the goodness of God on an eternal scale. Right? God doesn't always just give us things, does he? When we pray for something, it's not always a yes. Oh, yes, child, I want to give you everything. It's not how God works. Right? Sometimes it's yes. Sometimes it's no. Sometimes it's wait. <laughs> but God does give. And we, James wants us to understand that every good thing that, that, that sits on this eternal scale, that those things are from God. I mean, think about it. If you won the lottery today, that'd be a good thing, wouldn't it? Today. But think of the destruction. Yeah, and James, like Liam's like, Liam's a smart guy over here. He's like, well, maybe, right? Think of the destruction that can come from that. So let's let, say you win $100 million today, right? Let's even say you put a little bit away, right? You have kids later on in life. You spoil them rotten, right? They don't learn how to work. They don't learn how to, to, to enjoy the, the, the fruit of their labor. They have kids that are spoiled. Like, you get what I'm saying here? Just for time's sake, we're not going to keep going down that path. But the idea is that it's this, this, this kind of like momentary satisfaction. But when we look at the gifts God gives us, we see the eternal benefit rather than the temporal the momentary satisfaction. The things that, that God gives us, and you guys see the fact is 
that we have to understand that God gives us these things, right? We have to understand that it's an eternal, on that eternal scale, and even coming to the understanding and the logical thought, then, then those trials, those various trials, must be from God. Because if I'm called to walk through those with joy and steadfastness and patience, and to come out the other side with humility and meekness and, 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 and courage to follow my God and boldness, then those trials must be good. They must be from God. Everything that God does in your life, you guys, is for a reason. He created you for a reason. The life you were brought into, it was for a reason. The family you were given, it's for a reason. All right? The trials you would endure through that life are for a reason. The wounds that you'll, that you'll inflict, you'll self-inflict and others will inflict on you. The victories in life, they are all for a reason. See, what James he wants us to get is he comes back around on this thought, ending in verse 18. What he wants us to understand is that God gives good gifts. And even those various trials in life, well, no matter what they are, and I went over them earlier, from financial to the future to present, whatever it is that's, that's, that's a trial in your life, to understand that those things are gifts from God to help you grow and mature and become more than you are. That's hard to hear at times. And if you're in a trial right now and you're going through something like that, I get it. That's tough to hear. You probably want to come up here and hit me. But see, the fact is, in that, right, not hitting me, but in that, as you, as you struggle through that, and you trust God and you walk in joy, the fact is that God wants to give you character. He wants to give you endurance. It's all for a reason. Do you know and see God's good and just character through those trials? It's the first question I have for you. Do you know and see God's good character through those trials? If you're going through something right now and you don't see God's hand in it, I challenge you. Just as, as he told us earlier in this chapter, seek God in wisdom. Ask him. Ask him for wisdom. Read Proverbs 7. Right? It's all about a young man or a young woman seeking wisdom. Right? Ask God in it. Do you see God's good, care, good and just character in that trial? Right? If you don't, it will really be hard to have true joy, steadfastness, and patience through life. The fact is that choice is really yours. The choice is mine. That as those trials come, as the temptations come in life, am I seeing God's good character through those things or am I not? And if I'm not seeing it, then I, got, then I got, have to really check myself and see where I'm at with the Lord. And you guys, this is not always the easiest, but it's something we're called to. Okay. Father, we're com- we come before you right now and just thank you and praise you again for your word and for what's real and true in all of this, God. I ask and pray that you would just show yourself, reveal yourself to these young hearts and minds in so many ways. In your name, amen. Calvary Monterey's youth ministry meets on Tuesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Both middle school and high school students are welcome. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.